0: pray. Right. Father, we are completely dependent on you. Uh, your word goes out and does the thing that you sent it to do. It does not return to you empty or void, but it accomplishes the purpose for, purposes for which you sent it. And because we know that that is true, and we know that you demand our trust in you, uh, we believe that you will act through your word when we trust you. The problem is, Lord, we don't really know how to trust you and we really can't trust you on our own so we depend on your spirit to even create within us a trust for you as your word tells us in Ezekiel 36 that it is you who's causing these things in us so cause in us dependence on you and trust in you create in us a need for you and create in us ears that can hear you as you speak this morning and we We are in absolute need of you to be the one at work. So prepare hearts and minds as you communicate your truth. And may that truth go into our minds and may you transform it into righteousness and godliness and holiness and satisfaction and pleasure in you. Make make your gospel look glorious this morning pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, as we walk through 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we get to verse 13, we have in this verse, in this text, a, the beginning of a series of commands that end chapter 4. So I think there's a total of nine commands in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 to to the end of the chapter there in 16, nine different commands. And today we're only going to cover verse 13 and we'll see in verse 13, three commands that we must follow, all of which are different ways in which the word of God magnifies his glory and satisfies us in Christ. And what I hope to show you is that obedience to these commands isn't really about obedience at all. But that's kind of, uh, I think, a difficult thing for Christians to understand. I think that oftentimes a lot of believers struggle with this concept of obedience because we understand that obedience isn't just about this rote activity that, you know, if I go to church because that's obedience, check, done, going to heaven. Well, we know that that's not true. We know that going to church or, you know. Loving one another or whatever command, you know, don't get drunk. Like if you obey those commands, that doesn't send you to eternal life. Like we know that because we trust in the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God in Christ through the gospel for our salvation, that our salvation is not through our works, but faith in Christ. So we, we know that, and we believe that, and then we get saved, and we're like, yeah, I'm saved, great, by God's grace, through faith in him. Now, I have to do all the rules right, or God's going to be mad at me forever. And we believe in a gospel of grace, and then once we're saved, we immediately turn into like this legalistic animal that has to obey all these rules, or we're going to lose our salvation. Oh, but my theology tells me I can't lose my salvation. So what's my conclusion? I guess it doesn't matter if I obey or not because I'm saved by God's grace. And then, a, a, then, then tons of Christians end up living the rest of their life not caring about obedience. And it's not because they don't care about God or because they don't care about obedience because they don't understand what the purpose and point of obedience is. And what I'm trying to tell you and what I think we'll see here in one way <clears throat> through the word of God is that these commands aren't about obedience. It's not about, hey, make sure that you do these things. Make a checklist, and that checklist should include the commands that I give you here, and then every time you get together as a church, you better be able to check those off. And as long as you can check those off, you're a good church, and you're good Christians. That's not what God's after. I mean, think about it. What is God after? Let me frame it like this. What are you after with your children? What do you want most from your children? What do you want most, Children, young people, what do you want most from your parents? Husbands, what do you want most from your wives? Wives, what do you want most from your husbands? What do we want from relationships, any relationship? We want love. That's, I mean, all the other things that are part of a relationship are great. And those are all benefits, and those benefits are the benefits that come from love. We want, to, we want our children to love us. In fact, there's, there's a lot of parents, because parenting's hard, there's a lot of parents that want love from their children so much, they won't even be disciplinary with them. They won't give their children discipline, because they're afraid that the discipline might ruin their children's ability to love them, and what they're missing out on is the fact that discipline actually produces healthier love. So, like, there's such a great desire for a parent to have their children love them, that they will even do the wrong thing just to ensure that they feel loved by their kids. Husbands and wives, what else would you want from your spouse but love? Because if your spouse loves you, what are you gonna get? What else are you gonna get from them? Everything else that you're supposed to get. Love will produce these things. So, what is it that God wants when He gives us commands? Does He want us to follow the rule? Is that what He's after? No. He's after your heart. He's after your mind. He wants to capture your heart and your mind. He wants you to love Him. This is about desire. This isn't about just rote obedience, it's about devotion. We'll see that in verse 13. It's about devotion and a desire and a passion to know God in Christ. If my wife is going to love me well, what does she have to know? Me. If I give her a list, if I write out a list of all the things that, that would make me happy, um, do the dishes every day, uh, clean the house, feed our children. Um, and then I give her, you know, like 10, 20 things every day. If you could check these things off, I'll feel loved. You don't have to talk to me, wife. We don't have to have a conversation. No hugs, no kisses, no communication. It doesn't matter. Uh, it, it, this relationship isn't about you and me engaging with each other. It's about this list. This list makes me happy. So do these things. Dishes, clean the house, vacuum, do the laundry, take care of our kids. You know, and I and say, I want these things done. And if you do that, I'll feel loved. Would that be a loving marriage? Of course not. What produces love? Is it, is it a series of tasks? No. If she does none of those tasks, but walks in the door and embraces me and hugs me and kisses me and says, Husband, I love you. Can we spend the rest of the evening together just in each other's arms talking about our hopes and dreams and wishes? That would strengthen our marriage. Can we be in the word together? That would strengthen our marriage. Can we pray together? That would strengthen our marriage. Why is the marriage strengthened that way and not through the list? Because the list is simply an expression of the love that is developed when the relationship is filled with desire and devotion and passion. And that same reality is true of our relationship with God. God doesn't give us a list of commands simply because he just wants us to do them. They are the product of your desire for him. And those, that list also serves as a means to produce in you a desire for him. Our objective is to know God in Christ. Our objective is not to follow all his commands. Is, should we follow all his commands? Of course. To not do that would be sin. And that would offend God. And that would be unrighteousness. So, of course, we want to obey his commands, but the aim is not the commands themselves. The aim is Christ. We want to know Jesus personally, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, physiologically, in every step. Every imaginable way possible, I want to be engaged with, enthralled in, and gathered up by Christ. I want to be in his presence. I want to hear his voice. I want to see his face. I want to be in his word. I want to talk to him. I want to share with him. I want to engage with him in my struggles. I want to be in the presence of Jesus because there is nothing that anybody wants more than joy. Joy is what everybody wants. Everybody wants joy. And to to say that you don't want joy is to lie to yourself. We all want to be happy. Even the people who love being miserable. Why do they love being miserable? Because it makes them happy to be miserable. That's their form of joy. Everybody wants to be satisfied. That's our nature. That's the nature of needing food every five hours a day. If you're like me. Five hours, every five hours, three, four times a day, right? Why? why do we want to eat? Because all of a sudden, I don't feel satisfied anymore. I have to consume food. We talked about this earlier in chapter 4 in verses 3, 4, and 5 when Paul talks about the false teachers who are, are presenting a false gospel that is abstinence from food. And Paul says, God created food to be received with joy. Like, that's the whole, like, why does food exist? So that we, as we consume it, I go, oh, this food is like my God in the sense that I will die without it, which is why Jesus says, When his disciples bring him food, you know, Jesus, you need to eat. And he goes, I have food that you don't know about to do the will of my father. Jesus understands also when he says to Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. Jesus understands that food isn't what we need. Food is an image of our desperation for God. It reveals to us our human need for satisfaction and sustenance. And our spiritual reality is that God in Christ is our satisfaction and sustenance. And so everything that we do as believers should be for and to and through and because of Jesus. It should be all about Christ. Our desire for anything and everything in life should first be filtered through the reality of who Jesus Christ is. So that is kind of the that, that, that genuine desire to know the person of Jesus personally, to engage with him in any and every way possible, is the underlying foundation of Paul's commands here in verse 13. So he says in verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortations, to teaching. So these commands are so important that Paul decided to write this letter before he arrives back in Ephesus. <clears throat> so to ensure that the church works toward actual spiritual health and maturity before Paul comes or in the event that Paul doesn't come at all. In fact, Paul said back in chapter 3 verse 14 that he also, he also said back then that he wanted to visit and come back. Uh, And then he says it again here in 4.13. And we don't really know if Paul returns to Ephesus. Evidence indicates that he doesn't. So this is kind of like, we don't know if this is his last communication with Timothy or that the second letter is his last communication with Timothy. But what we do know or what we think is that he never returned. And so the gravity of this letter is just elevated already. The Paul saying, hey, I would like to come to you. And then tell you all these things, and I'll preach to your people, and I'll help you handle the false teachers, and I'll kick out this guy and that guy, and I'll deal with uh, your, your church's inability to kind of manage Uh, You know, male and female roles, who does what during church services, what's allowed and what's not allowed, qualifications for elders, and all these things. You know, Paul could come and do that himself, but he's like, if I don't get to come, then that stuff's not going to get taught. So until I come, here's a list of things that you guys need to know and do and understand so that church can grow and be healthy and Christ-like. And it turns out that he probably doesn't return. And so this letter increases in its weight and importance And these commands, these three commands, read scripture publicly, exhort and teach, these are commands that still stand for us today. They are commands that are to be understood as being directly given to the shepherds of the church, or more specifically, the primary teacher and the leader of the church or the pastor of the church, who in this case is Timothy. But if we properly understand the standards of eldership back in chapter 3, then we can see that the commands... That Paul gives Timothy here fall in line with the requirements and qualifications of eldership. Meaning, these commands would apply to both Timothy and the elders in Ephesus. One of the commands is teaching. One of the requirements of eldership is the ability to teach. So we could kind of say that these three commands are for the church's shepherds. And as we learned last week, these shepherds, because we see this in. Uh, Verse uh, 12, Paul tells Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, conduct, and love, and faith, and purity. These elders are to give an example for the flock to follow. Meaning we can conclude that these commands are also for the rest of the church to follow as well. However, yet one command specifically, teaching. It's not commanded of all believers because James tells us in James three, one, not many of you should become teachers for, you know, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So teaching is not commanded for everybody, but it is a command for all elders. But what is for all believers in this text in these three commands is that there's a heartbeat to these commands. There's like an underlying reality that is woven through these commands. And these commands are are the means that God gives the church to express this heartbeat that lies underneath these commands. And what these commands are really about, that applies to every believer, is how we value the word of God. The value of the word of God is ultimately the heartbeat of what Paul is telling Timothy Read Scripture publicly, use Scripture to exhort one another, and teach Scripture. What is, what is the common denominator in all those? Scripture, the Word of God. And that's ultimately where, where Paul's getting at, is that these things, what he's really trying to help Timothy understand, what he's really trying to express is the Word of God should be the most central element to the church's functionality. So Paul says in verse 13, devote yourselves to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He says to devote yourself. The verb devote means to turn your mind to or to attach yourself to. So attach yourself or turn your mind to public reading, attach yourself to exhortation, attach yourself to teaching. It should be a common mark of the church that these things are happening, that we should be so attached to these realities, to these commands, that they are seen by the world and by the church as this is an identifier of what a believer and what a church is all about. And what would, the, what would the world and what would the church see if we were attaching ourselves to public reading of Scripture? If we were attaching ourselves to exhortation of Scripture? If we were attaching ourselves to the teaching of Scripture? What would the world and the church see? Scripture. What would they hear? Scripture. And when they hear Scripture, who do they hear? God. And who do they see? Christ. That is why Paul is giving these three commands. To elevate the use and function of Scripture Of the word of God in the church, because only through the word of God will God himself in Christ be properly, properly exalted and manifested and glorified. And only in him being those things will we be truly satisfied. Now, this word devote was used in the first century as, as a reference for bringing ships into port. So this idea of devoting a ship to sailing in to land and into port. So the meaning here is that Timothy is to bring himself to Scripture and essentially park himself in the Word. So that's the command for Timothy. You need to be in the Word. And, and that's the command for me as an elder in the church and for Brian as an elder in the church. And for me as a pastor of the church, it is my requirement, according to this text, to park myself in the Word. To be in the Word, to know the Word. One of the reasons we just learned from last week in verse 12 is that by doing so, I will set an example for you to follow. If I'm in the Word, you see an example of being in the Word. Well, how do you see that example? How many of you guys come to my office on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. and you're watching me read the Bible? None of you, right? If you do come to my office, what do I do? I close my Bible and I talk to you. I don't say, would you like to... Sit there and watch me read the Bible so I can set an example of Bible reading for you? That would be weird. So that's not the kind of thing we do. So how do I set an example of being in the word for you? Number one, I need to know it. And then what? Read it publicly, declare it to you, use it to exhort you, and teach you. And live it, which we'll see at the end of these verses in verse 16. That my living it will also set an example for you. And I can't live it if I'm not parked in it. So we see the significance and importance and, and, and the validity of the power of God's word that is necessary for the, for the church to grow and function in a way that honors God. And we can understand how devotion to the word would include this idea of remaining in the word or parking ourselves in the word, which was Paul's ultimate hope Here is just to elevate and escalate the importance and the usage of the of God's word because it's the only thing we have. Like we are given the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we can understand this book, so we know how to live our lives. More on that in a minute. Now, this ver- verb "devote" here is applied to three separate book-related activities. The three activities, The three commands I've said: devote yourself to public reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to the exhortation of Scripture. Devote yourself to the teaching of Scripture. All three of these activities, the pastor is supposed to devote himself to so that, verse 15, all may see your progress. And the implication here is that if the shepherd is devoted to the word, he will grow. And in his growth, the church will will be encouraged to grow as well through a variety of different means. And then they can follow their shepherd and their leaders and their elders and listen to the teachers as they pour their life into the church through the word of God. And if you're wondering why the reason for the pastor's devotion to scripture is for his own testimony and that the reason is not for the benefit of the body. Paul resolves that issue in verse 16 when he says, by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the pastors and the church will both be sanctified by the pastor's devotion to the word through public reading, exhortation, and teaching. So we have to understand that devotion to these activities is not about the activities themselves. As I was saying earlier, it's not about the list, it's not about a checkoff, it's not just about a rote obedience to a certain list of commands because I could come up here every week and just read scripture for you not even think about what I'm reading have no connection to the text itself not be filled with the spirit and you would still hear the word of God and he would still and could still use it in an amazing way but I could do it without Christ involved in it at all so it's not just about the activity it's about the one whom the activity is focused on Christ The body of Christ is dependent and marked by its devotion to Christ. And all three of these things are the product of our devotion to Christ because they are all centered around the word of God. And the word of God is Christ. Jesus is the word of God. We see this in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Christ. Christ. It's Jesus. He is the word of God. Revelation 19, 13 also tells us that he has a name and his name is the word of God. So devotion to the word of God is devotion to Christ. If you ever want to say, I I want to know Jesus more. I want to experience Christ in new and unique ways. I just want to get closer to Him. The the, the primary and really only solution to that problem or that desire is be in the Word. That's it. Because I could tell you, well, if you want to know Christ more, just pray more. If you want to know Christ more, uh, come to church and listen to the sermons. If you want to know Christ more, come to prayer service. If you want to know Christ more, come to our Wednesday night Bible study. If you want to know Christ more, come to our... The women's Bible study or the men's Bible study or the family discipleship or a life group or Sunday morning prayer service or come to all these different events or the Bible study that happens on Sunday morning or or make sure you're singing worship songs or and we could could give you a list of different ways that you could possibly experience Christ. But why would I give you a list of all of those things when all I have to tell you is if you want to know Christ, he's right here. And if you get into his word, you will hear him tell you all the ways that you can know him better. He will tell you in his word all the ways that you can experience him in in the variety of ways he offers an experience with him. He will tell you what devotion to him looks like. He will give you a list of commands to follow. He will tell you the importance of following them. He will ensure you understand grace that is required to follow them. He will help you understand the gospel. He will explain to you and express to you the nature and reality of who God is. Only in the word of God do all of those other activities that also help us know Christ, only in the word of God do we find those activities for us to understand them. Meaning, I'm not going to tell you a bunch of different ways to experience Christ. Meet him in the word In the Word, He will tell you about all of those different experiences and different ways to know Him. And ultimately, finding Him in the Word yourself is going to be far more satisfying to you than if I give you a bunch of different tactics to engage with Christ. Doesn't mean I won't give you tactics or won't help you walk through those things. You know, of course, that works too. But but ultimately... Our entire objective as a human being is to know Jesus. That's it. Your entire purpose for existing is to know Jesus. Why? Because knowing Christ glorifies God. The more you know Christ, the more you will be satisfied in who God is in Christ. And the more satisfied you are in God, the more God is glorified in you. That's all there is to it. And the whole purpose of your existence is to glorify God. That's it. Your primary purpose of existing is to glorify God. And the, most, and the best way for you to glorify God is to be satisfied in Him. And the best way to be satisfied in Him is to know Him. And the best way to know Him is to be in His Word. In a variety of different ways. Personally, by yourself, together with the church, and with your family. I mean, when you break it down like that, the Christian life actually sounds kind of easy. Kind of simple, right? Oh, that's it. I just need to glorify God. That's the whole reason I exist to glorify God. And glorifying God is gonna happen most in my life if I'm most satisfied in him. If I'm most satisfied in him, or the way I get most satisfied in him is to know him better, and I get to know him through his word, so I simply have to be in his word, and that will eventually produce God's greatest glory in my life. That's a pretty simple reality. So all I gotta do is get in the word. And then you get in the word and you start realizing, you know. The way Jesus describes a Christian life isn't that easy, actually. It's rather difficult. And then you start to learn and grow and understand who he is and what he's like and what you're supposed to be like. And you start to realize, oh, I have to follow this command and that command and this command and that command. These are hard things to do. And we see difficult things that people do in Scripture that they do as an act of obedience to God because they love Jesus and you go, that's what my life is going to be, this is going to be kind of costly. This life is going to require a little sacrifice and probably a little suffering if I'm actually going to follow this guy that I claim I want to know and love and follow for the rest of my life. It doesn't look that easy. And he goes, yeah, it's hard. And you go, well, you know what? Maybe I kind of don't want that. He goes, whoa, 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 wait a second. I'm not sending you out to the wolves alone. I'm going to give you something myself. And in giving you myself... I'm not only going to send you out with the Holy Spirit in you, but I'm also going to send you out in a pack to protect you from the wolves. And what do wolves love to do? Pull sheep from the pack, separate them, get them alone, and then the wolf pack will consume the one sheep. So why do we, when we leave the pen, we need to leave together. That's the power of the unity of the body of Christ, is that we not only grow together, we protect each other. From sin and from Satan and from the enemy and from ourselves, ultimately. Because let's be honest, you are your worst self. Listen, you are your worst self when you are alone. You cannot deny that. That is fact. You are your worst self when you are alone. When you are by yourself and there is nobody around, you will do and say and act out and think things that you would never do in front of 20 other people. Now, maybe you have incredibly wonderful Christ-like integrity and you would never do something alone that you wouldn't do in front of 20 people. That would be ideal. That would be Christ-like. And that's where we all want to get to, that kind of Christ-like integrity. But the reality is, you're most likely going to express the worst version of yourself alone rather than publicly. So what does that tell us? Well, don't be alone. Like, that doesn't mean you can't ever be alone, obviously. I mean, your prayer life should be alone. But when you're not alone in your prayer life, you're engaging in meeting with God himself, right? So being alone is super dangerous. A sheep out in the wild is in trouble, period. That's why Jesus says, I'm going to leave the 99 sheep to go get the one. Because the 99 sheep are safer, way safer, because they have each other than the one sheep who's out by himself. So don't be alone. And if you're going to be alone, be alone with the Lord and be alone in the word. This is why this is the value of having a Family. This is why I call marriage the great sanctifier, because when you're married, you eventually can't pretend anymore. It's like it's just too hard to pretend that I'm somebody else in front of my wife. I just can't keep it up every second of every day. The reality is I come home and I'm crabby after a long day of work and I kind of just spew all my crabbiness. And then, the, you know, life gets real. It gets hard and you can't hide your sin for that long. Not at home. Eventually, you're just you're going to be yourself. And your spouse is going to see it and they're going to know exactly who you are. And then you start thinking to yourself, oh, my goodness, I'm setting a terrible example for my wife and children. I am setting a terrible example for my family. I need to actually and then maybe our solution is I'm going to behave better. You start putting on kind of a mask, a facade of who you really aren't to show your family what you know you should be, even though you're not that thing yet. And then you realize after maybe a few years, that doesn't work. Because that facade, I just can't keep it up long enough in the reality of my personal life at home. So then what do you discover? I have to actually grow. I have to actually change. I have to genuinely fix myself. Which I can't do. Because I've tried that and it has never worked. So what do I need? I guess I just need Christ. I need Jesus. I need to be more like Jesus, which means I need the Word. And then you dig into the Word, you start growing, you start learning, and your family starts changing and growing. And what, is, what happened there? Your family, not even by their words, but simply by their presence, kept you accountable to Christlikeness. And that's what the church does. So... As much as devotion to the word of God benefits the morality of the church, the primary aim of devotion to the word is for the bride of Christ to enthrall herself in its husband's presence and to embrace him spiritually and mentally and emotionally. Just as a wife loves her husband and expresses that love for him by longing for him, longing for his hugs and longing for his kisses and longing for his Compassionate gaze into her eyes longing for for her experience of his passion for her longing for his guidance and longing for his leadership and longing ultimately for his presence. I don't know about you and your marriage, but the one thing that my wife needs most for me, and this is what I've experienced in 16 years of marriage. Uh, Yeah, right? Okay, cool. (laughs) 17 on December. So uh, in 16 and a half years of marriage, the one thing my wife needs most from me, I mean, you could say like, she needs Christ most from me. Those are obvious. But just in the, between each other, what she wants most from Mark is my presence. It's when I'm gone that she is affected most. And it's when I'm present that she is, feels loved the most. So, that's because she's my bride and I'm her husband. And that's what a bride wants from her husband. And we're the bride of Christ. That's what we want from our husband his presence. We want his passion for us. We want to know it and experience it. We want his guidance and his leadership. And we want his presence. We want to know him. want to be around him. We want to experience him. If we're really his bride, do we really desire him the way a bride should desire her husband? So the bride of Christ, if she is truly his bride, will long for Christ in all the same ways and more. So devotion to the word of God in the church is not a liturgically religious activity by which we can simply check off a box of obedience to God and, and, and then we're repelling his anger towards us. Our devotion to the word should not be a chore. It should be our joy. Just as a good wife genuinely desires the voice and the presence of her good husband, the aim of, of knowing Christ is our joy and satisfaction in him. I mean, just think about the number of people who, who in my last, I don't know how long it's been, 17 years of pastoral ministry, the number of times I've had people come to me and they're distraught about something, right? And they need some sort of counsel, like, oh, this is happening, that's happening, my marriage, my life, my job, my sin, my, whatever it is, and they're distraught. And I could ask every single one of those persons, one of those people, hey, what if, instead of what you're feeling or experiencing, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation, regardless of the trouble you're facing or the trial, whatever it is, maybe you lost your baby. Maybe you had a, a stillbirth. Uh, maybe it's something that's horrifying like that and, and terrible and Painful. Maybe someone you love died. Maybe it's something a lot harder but not death. Maybe it's a struggle in your marriage. Just, you just, marriage is falling apart. And maybe it's something even lesser. Like, oh, I'm just struggling with this or that sin. I don't know. Whatever it is, regardless of the circumstance, every single one of those people, I could say to them, and they would all have the same answer. I could ask them the same question, and they, sh- they would all have the same answer. What if instead of what you're experiencing now, I offered you joy would you want that every single person would say yes that's exactly what i want and then my answer would be it's christ that's it it's jesus he's the joy now that's a super generic answer that's kind of a sunday school answer like jesus is the answer but there's a lot more depth to that i obviously understand that but that's the answer is everybody's Anything in your life and everybody's life, anything in your life that isn't completely satisfying is missing joy. And if it's missing joy, then it's missing Christ. You can still have joy in the presence of terrible sorrow. Joy is not a happy emotion. Joy is a sustainable knowledge of our eternal hope in Christ. And it is our looking forward to his presence. So, Joey isn't like, hey, are you sad because someone you love just died? Hey, let's turn that frown upside down and I'll give you Jesus and you can be happy again. And then you won't cry anymore. It's like, that's not real. Because that, that person has to wrestle with that pain that they are facing. That's a real emotion and a real experience. They have to fight. But you need to, you need to engage with that pain with the joy of your hope of the presence of christ it's the only way to live it's the only thing that gets you through life i was just we had a life group on friday night and i was saying to the life group we're just talking about a variety of things i said i just don't i just don't know how a human being could possibly get through this life without jesus i just don't get it are they miserable they have to be miserable They have to be miserable and they have to be hiding their misery with something, probably an idol. Some false god, entertainment, sports, family, speedboats, cabins in the lake, whatever it is. I don't know. Lots of money. The pursuit of money. I don't know. Stuff, comfort. Something must be replacing what they are lacking because I don't understand how you can navigate this world without an eternal hope in Christ. So... Why then are Christians navigating their Christian life without joy in Christ? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And I'm not telling you so. The solution is just get more joy, everybody. I, I know that you can't just turn joy on like it's a switch. I'm telling you what Paul's telling you. The only way to get that joy is to be in the word. Meet Christ there. He will satisfy and you will find joy. So our devotion to the word should not be a chore. It should be coming from a passion to engage with our God and our Lord and our master, Jesus Christ. And he consummates our marriage to him by indwelling us and leaving us with himself via the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So by the Spirit... Christ himself, the spirit of Christ, Paul says, Christ lives in me, and we're told that it's the Holy Spirit. So does the spirit of Christ, or the spirit of God, Jesus is God, so the spirit of God is in us, dwelling within us, and he makes us his dwelling place to ensure that, this is important, he makes us his dwelling place to ensure that, according to Ezekiel 36, 27, we remain faithful while we wait for our husband to return. Not only has he left us himself to indwell us, but he has also left for us his words. So we have his word and himself in us. And so any inability to understand his words is solved by he himself sanctifying the mind of the believer so they can understand the words of God. Which is how the Holy Spirit illuminates the text and helps us interpret and understand the meaning of Scripture so that we can live a life that is faithful while we wait for our husband to come back. The words of Scripture are not just about Jesus and the words of Scripture are not just the words of Jesus and during his earthly ministry. They are the living and active and continual continually breathed out words by Jesus through human authors of Scripture. 2 Peter one twenty one says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, man did not write this. The Holy Spirit wrote it through men they're carried along by the spirit and then Paul also tells us in 2 Timothy 3:16 all scripture is breathed out by God so the words that we have in scripture are the very words from Christ himself even the ones that are not in red he is our god who has written the bible through holy men so that we will always have in this life his clear and direct communication so to produce a plethora of things in our lives including his glory And including our obedience and our devotion to Him and our following Him and our loving Him and our unrelenting passion and desire for His presence, which He has secured for us by His Spirit. So we can see why these commands to devote, this word devote ourselves to the Word of God is so vital. Without a devotion to the Word of God, there is no church, there is no Christ. There is no growth, there is no sanctification, there is no maturing, there is no joy, there is no satisfaction, there is certainly no gospel, there is no good preaching, there is no good teaching. There's nothing, there's no ministry that is the fruit of the power of God's voice active in the church. What is the church without the word of God? And what is the word of God without believers filled with the Holy Spirit teaching, communicating, learning and growing and diving into it? And what is that experience if we are not filled with a passion and a desire and a devotion to know God in Christ? This is massively important to the church. This text, these commands are essential to church growth. We will never grow in sanctification the way God desires for us if we are not obedient to Paul's command here. And if we are not, those things will never happen. If not only obedient to the commands, but obedient to the heartbeat of these commands, which is a desire to know God in Christ, which brings us to his word. So these commands to devote ourselves to the Word of God are so vital because it is essentially our way of listening directly to our Savior. This is our, this is our, this is our version of being apostles in Jesus' time. As the apostles walked with Christ, we too get to walk with Christ in the Word. Until we get to experience that reality eternally. And just as the apostles did while they followed Jesus in his earthly ministry, we get to do it in the word. In fact, that's what Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 1. That 2 Peter chapter 1 reference I read where he is saying uh, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but that men spoke from God and were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That context of that verse begins with Peter referencing the transfiguration of Jesus or the glorification of Jesus on a mountain. During that transfiguration, Jesus takes with him three apostles, Peter, James, and John. And they were taken up on a high mountain where Jesus revealed to them himself in his glorified state. And they saw Jesus shining brightly. And along with Jesus were Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine the sight? You're following this guy who says he's God. He's done some miracles. He's done some pretty incredible things. You're like, man, this guy is just like... Every time he speaks, it's like, "Whoa, my mind is blown. And then I watch him just cast out demons and heal people. It's like, this guy has to be God. I mean, you're watching things, and and, and in some of those things, a lot of other people are looking at and going, "Mm, I don't know about this guy. And they, they have ways of explaining it away. And then Jesus takes three disciples, three apostles, up on the mountain and goes, If you weren't sure about me, let me show you something. And transforms into his glorious state, shines so brightly, the cloud above him shines brightly as God speaks down from the cloud. And Moses and Elijah show up. Like you, you, you gotta understand how big of a deal that is to a first-century Jew, right? Who's raised in Judaism? And who are the two one of the two of the biggest figures in the Old Testament? Moses and Elijah. And these guys. Just randomly, not randomly, intentionally by God, show up in front of you as Christ himself magnifies his glory in a bright light that is hard to look at, impossible to look at. And then Matthew 17, 5, a voice comes down from the cloud that is lit up with glory. And it's God the Father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well. pleased. listen to him. If they weren't sure before then, they're sure now. That Jesus is God. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Savior. What an incredible experience. So the apostles saw something so miraculously amazing that it solidified for them. The validity of Jesus as the Messiah and as the Savior. And as God... So that is what Peter references in 2 Peter 1. And he says in verse 18 to verify the reality of that event. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. That is an incredible sight to behold. And an amazing, it's an amazing truth to verify and validate the person of Jesus as Christ. But then... Peter says in the very next verse, 2 Peter 1.19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter is comparing... His experience personally seeing the glorification of Jesus, he's comparing that to the written word of God, this Bible that's in your lap right now. He's comparing his experience on the mountain, way up high, seeing Moses and Elijah and the glory of Christ expressed in front of him as the voice of God himself shines down from a cloud of glory and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine that sight and Peter saying that isn't any more valid than the Bible you hold in your hands? He's saying, I have something more sure, the word of God. You are not left without in any way, shape or form. We have missed nothing at all because we have Christ not only internally through his spirit who dwells in us, but also in the written word, which according to scripture itself lacks nothing of Christ. So the importance of our devotion to public reading of Scripture, exhortation from Scripture, and the teaching of Scripture serves many purposes. But no purpose is greater than that, than that being, by being devoted to His Word, we are present with Him in His Word. Like this is, there is a real, genuine concept of presence that we get to experience never for the believer in Christ. Never, when you're absent from the word, are you without the presence of God. The most repeated and common promise in scripture is, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do not fear. That's actually it. Do not fear is the most repeated. And that do not fear comes with, I'll never leave you or forsake you. We are never without him. The, the problem we feel of distance with God is a problem that we create ourselves, but it's a feeling, not a reality. And so what happens with our presence with God is when we get into the word, we align our minds with truth that help us understand the presence of God. That's how it fixes the problem. And so we are devoted to his word so that we are present with him in his word. And therefore, we are satisfied in him, which ultimately magnifies God's glory the most in you. So there are three... I'll just walk through these commands really fast because we're almost out of time. The first command here is public reading of Scripture. The key word here is publicly reading Scripture. The, the idea of public. You are to have a personal engagement with God's Word, but we are also to do it together. The public nature of the command takes our personal devotion in the Word and brings it to the gathering of the church so that we are not united with just united with Him personally, but that we are united with them personally together. Which is required since the bride of Christ is not one person, but the entirety of the different and distinct people that make up the body of Jesus, the bride of Christ. And this ensures by by having a variety of different types of people, different skin colors, different cultures, different mentalities, different perspectives, um, different languages, all the differences that you can express in humanity will be expressed eternally in heaven. Or in the presence of Jesus forever. Why? To show that it's not the uniqueness of humanity that is glorified. But it is the power and uniqueness of Christ himself that unifies the distinctions and differences that is glorified. That magnifies Christ. So unity magnifies the power of Christ. That is why public reading of scripture is important. Because togetherness is important. Additionally, publicly reading public reading of Scripture ensures that God's voice is proclaimed to his people. Right. Like if we're in Scripture, then God speaks. So it ensures that God speaks to us and that we don't have men saying what they want to say. That is not what God wants to say. And you can spot the consequences of that not happening in churches. That use their 20 minute sermon time to tell stories without any exposition of God's word. And the result is what? Unsatisfied believers who do not mature. Or even worse, false converts who remain confident in a salvation that they do not have. So we ensure God's voice reigns in the church by sticking to and declaring God's word. That has to happen publicly in the presence of the body. The second command is exhortation, which really just means encouragement, or it means appeal to truth, or it means comfort in truth. And all three of those descriptions fit this word well. Exhortation is essentially an encouragement. And what, when would you need encouragement? Well, when you're discouraged, right? And when you're discouraged, what will encourage you? Well, I will appeal to you with truth. Because that's what you need in your discouragement. And I'll appeal to you in comfort. So encouragement and appeal to truth and comfort in truth are what exhortation is all about. When we are discouraged and struggling and faithless and disobedient and not following Christ, we can feel the distance that we created between us and God. It feels like fellowship is broken. We talked about this on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago in our family discipleship. It feels like fellowship is broken, but it's not broken It's not even changed because fellowship has never been and never will be dependent on our actions. The way we experience closeness to God definitely changes based on what's going on in our life and heart and mind and all that. That's a reality and that's an experience you have. But that is not the fellowship that Christ has earned for us On the cross, our fellowship with God is secured both in this life and in the life to come solely and only by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, which is revealed to us by Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. That is the gospel. So when we need encouragement the most, we are comforted by the truth of Scripture as it reminds us that the distance we feel between us and God when we're not following Christ well is actually no distance at all. Your sin cannot separate you from God because your sin was the cause of God drawing you into himself in the first place. So if If you sin, which I would never say is okay, but if you sin, that does not remove you from his presence or his pleasures. Positionally, instead of you serving sin, now through the gospel, sin becomes a reminder of God's grace, and in the reminder of his grace, we are encouraged toward greater faithfulness to him. That is why it is vital that the pastors, for the sake of the church's soul exhort and encourage the body and the greatest encouragement is found in the preaching of the gospel to remind you of the grace of God to secure your soul in Christ and to remind you of the power of the gospel to lift you out of sin that you feel is creating a separation and and what the gospel does is it lifts you out of that sin and reminds you your sin was was the problem that Christ has already fixed the fellowship is fixed It is secured. What you're experiencing is the product of your wretched, sinful flesh. And it must be killed, and it can only be killed with the encouragement of the gospel and a reminder that your ability to kill it rests solely on Jesus's ability to secure for you your perfect righteousness. And with that thought about the gospel, you realize I My sin was always the problem, and even when I'm behaving well or not behaving well, it doesn't change my position, nor does it change the nature of my sinful flesh. I am totally depraved in my wickedness, and I am totally secured in Christ. Both of those things are totally true at the same time. And when I realize that anything I do doesn't change those realities... Then I understand, well, I'm secured eternally. I'm going to sin. That's not okay. I want to conquer sin. And by the power of God's grace, understanding the gospel, that lifts me out of the mire of my own sin and leads me and clears the path for me of righteousness for me to live. So only the preaching of the gospel really is the encouragement that people need. Because it's the only thing that's going to get us out of sin and into righteousness. Therefore, it is imperative... That the word of God is central in the life of the church to ensure that the body, even while they sin, are reminded of the powerful working of the gospel as a means to encourage you to follow Christ more faithfully. And the final command is teaching of scripture, which is obviously vital to the life of the church, not just for sound doctrine. Chapter one was all about the importance of sound doctrine. So it's not just for sound doctrine teaching of scripture is not just to know theology the teaching of scripture is not just to listen to and follow god's commands all of those things clearly happen when we are in the word and the word itself tells us that those things are massively important to the sanctification of the believer but the teaching of scripture primarily serves as a means to do all those things plus and more importantly to draw us into the presence and the joy and the satisfaction of the person of jesus christ if we are teaching anything other than Jesus, then what's the point? I, I've i heard, I've listened to other sermons and other pastors and other churches, and there's a lot of really good churches out there that preach Christ. And there are some that I've heard that just don't. They just, just don't. It's storytelling time. It's storytelling and fix your lifetime. It's like, here's a story about how what happened to me. They'll read a Bible verse, maybe read it, explain what it... Not explain what it means, but you get a gist of the the topic for the day by the verse that is referenced. And then they tell a story about from their own personal experience. And then they give you a couple tools and tips on how to live that kind of way. Christ isn't in it, God isn't magnified, the gospel isn't preached, the word of God isn't expounded upon, there's no exegesis or exposition of the text. The Holy Spirit is not magnifying the person of Jesus Christ. It is a person standing at a pulpit telling you stories that will help you feel better today and might fix a couple of little problems in your life. But here's the catch. None of those problems are solved without Jesus. So to give anybody any solution other than Christ through the gospel that comes through the word of God is a colossal waste of time. And it's not church. It's not good. It doesn't glorify God. We're blessed that in the valley here in Osceola, there are really good churches that preach the word of God and preach the gospel and preach Christ. We're so blessed to have that. I think the application at the most basic level is this we must all and you've heard this from me a million times personally and together be in the word we got to be in the word and i think grace church we're in the word a lot uh my son said to me the other day he's like i have go to five bible studies a week i think it's actually six but it's a, <laughs> i'm like in addition to his own time in the word too and I'm like, that's so good. You have no idea how good this. It's like, yeah, but, I, you know, and he didn't say this, but he could have said like, yeah, but I could be playing video games. I could be playing with my friends. I could be learning a sport. I could be out of the lake. I could be doing all these different things. And in my mind, I'm going, yeah, you could be doing those things. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying any of those things. Okay. But what are we looking forward to? Eternal life in the presence of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait to die. I can't wait to be with Christ. And I don't mean that in a weird, crazy, suicidal, depressive way. I just can't wait to meet Jesus. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. He's like, oh, I'd rather just be dead and meet Christ. But, oh well, to live is still Christ. So while I'm living, I want to know Christ. I want to enjoy Christ. I don't want to shoot hoops. I don't want to go golfing. I don't want to read a book. I want to know Christ. I want to spend every second of every day of my life in the Word. I want to know Him, know Him, know Him, and know Him more. Because all I'm looking forward to in life is spending my eternity in the presence of the greatest joy and satisfaction that there is that your mind cannot even begin to fathom. You don't know happiness or joy. You just don't know it. You know it in Christ. But it's a sliver, it's a glimpse of eternal satisfaction. We have no concept of the joy we will have in the presence of Jesus Christ. No concept. The the, the closest thing I could think of, which is still a trillion miles away from the reality of the presence and joy of Christ, is when I stood at the altar 16 years ago, and my wife walked in the back door in her wedding gown. I was like, whoa! Yeah, I get to marry that woman. Woo! I was so excited. (laughs) Like that was the greatest joy for me. I was like, yeah, like that, that is probably the closest thing. The the joy of a loving relationship is the closest thing. And none of our human relationships could even compare to what we look forward to in eternity with Christ. So why not spend all your time in the word? Why not? You know, you what? Know, in fact, stop eating and stop drinking water and stop sleeping and just spend every second in the word. Obviously, that's not going to work. Right. But I say that facetiously to get you to understand that, like, there really is nothing of value outside of the word of God. And the only things that have value outside of the word of God get their value by coming from the word of God. I just said, I don't want to golf. That's not true. I love golfing. I really want to golf. Okay? I love shooting hoops. I love playing with my kids. I love doing all kinds. of. I love watching the Packers play. Okay? Is that a holy activity? Well, it could be or it might not be. But the reality is all those other things I do need to be worked out through the lens of Scripture so that when I do them, they are actually Christ-like joy for me and not just some mindless activities that I'm wasting my time on. So though we repeat constantly here at Grace Church the importance of being in the Word, it is not just so that you engage in any activity in which you are commanded to engage. Just do these things you're supposed to do. It's not just so that you know doctrine. It's not just so that you grow theologically. It is primarily so that you would know God himself through Christ and in Christ, and in knowing God more, you will love him more, and he will satisfy you more, and in your satisfaction in him, he will be most glorified in you. Let's pray. We love you, God. We love you, Jesus. We truly, just all of us, will never have perfect devotion and desire for you in this life. And that's okay. That's okay. But what's not okay is if we're not pursuing you. I want to have perfect devotion and desire for you. But like Paul says, ah, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And I, ah, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this flesh, Christ will. So, make yourself known to us. Drag us to your word if, we, if you have to, but just get us there. So we would find life in your word and see you and be satisfied in you and you'd be glorified in us. That's all we want. The rest of life and all the other details that go along with it, you'll, you'll work those things out through your word. And for your glory, and in in the process we'll fail and fall and sin and not do it right and all those things. And Pray that the encouragement of your word would lift us out of that desperation and draw us into your presence. Satisfy our hearts in Christ as we learn and know him more. For your glory, God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.